Welcome to an exclusive recording of the Shepherd's Path, the Seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif rahimahullah in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Quran Revolution. Quran Revolution is the game-changing online system designed to give you your Quranic voice. No matter where you are in your journey in recitation, Quran Revolution is designed to help you recite the Quran with confidence. Through its cutting-edge app, personal TA system, and groundbreaking curriculum for English-speaking Muslims, you'll learn more Tajweed in three months than you have in the past six years. Number one, lesson number one, we learned from it, is that in the face of the da'wah, one's own family might be hurt because of the message that you're carrying. And so we saw in this example, Uthman radiallahu anhu, son-in-law of the Prophet وسلم, the Prophet وسلم's own daughter, Ja'far radiallahu anhu, these are like his direct family members, and they migrated to Habasha. They migrated to Habasha. Number two, second lesson, is the permissibility of leaving one's country and seeking protection from non-Muslims. The permissibility of leaving one's country and seeking protection from non-Muslims, especially to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So if a person is not able to worship Allah in their country, they can travel to another country where they are able to worship Allah. Right? But still, in that other country, they're still standing up for justice. So an example of this, Abu Talib asked the Prophet to desist from spreading the message. Abu Talib was giving protection to the Prophet yet the Prophet was willing to give up that protection if it meant that he would not be able to spread the message of Islam. Right? So understanding that, that this protection is so long as a person can worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and do their duty. Number three, you'll notice that the Muslims, they went to Abyssinia, the Mushrikeen, they weren't happy that they had just left. It still bothered them that the Muslims were happy somewhere in the world, right? So it's not that if you just go and try to seclude yourself that, you know, nothing bad is going to happen to you, right? So even if you go away, they'll still come behind you and still try to make difficulties as they did for those Muslims. So what the Muslim needs to do is not seclude themselves, but rather always uh, spread the message of Islam. We also learned that in their da'wah to the non-Muslims there, and, and, and specific Christians in this, they didn't butter up the message. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them that victory in Abyssinia because of that. They didn't butter up the message. They told it directly just like it was revealed in the Qur'an. And as I said earlier, you'll find a lot of strength in doing that rather than trying to find like some flowery words um, just to make people happy. Number five, you'll see the the principle of shura. So before they went to speak to a Najashi, they went prepared and they discussed it amongst themselves. And they had a unifying voice as well. It was just one person speaking. It wasn't everyone giving their opinions and so on and so forth. So they did shura, they came to a conclusion, and then they executed that conclusion perfectly. You know, when you do shura, and then after shura is complete, and now you have like, you're moving as one voice, there's a lot of power in that. If you have, right in the middle of doing action, I've noticed this in an Islamic organization, as the action moves forward, at some point shaitan starts playing games, someone gets a difference of opinion inside the organization, and they're like, I don't agree with this. And then they want to take the organization, they're like, they basically like, you're walking with someone, holding hands, holding hands, and then they sit down. And they're like, I don't think we should be walking. So now instead of the organization moving forward, now they have to deal with some internal thing, which is this guy that sat down, now we have to deal with the person who sat down. 
So there's not like this unifying like leadership and so on and so forth in such a case. A lot of times when I hire someone from Maghrib Institute, this is like a lesson for you guys in like your DAO organizations, I'll put in the contract that I'm not requiring this IT person to be my mufti. Okay, so meaning that if we're gonna do something for Al-Maghrib, and let's say we're hiring some guy to like change the website, I'm like, I'm not going to seek your fatwa every time I wanna do something. And what I mean by that is like sometimes some guy is like doing an IT, and then he disagrees with something that's on the website. And, he's, and then he sits down. And then we have to bring all the shiuch and try to convince this guy, we come to his feet and say, please let us, do, you know what I mean? That's not the type of workers that we hire. He said, the, the fatwa, if we're going to seek fatwa, we'll seek fatwa from the shiuch. Please understand your position, and we're not asking you. And if someone did play that game, in the beginning, like if the person doesn't agree to something like that, then, you know what I mean? Go start your own organization, buddy. <laughs> a lot of, and subhanAllah, here's another footnote to that. A lot of people, they don't pay attention to who's volunteering. They basically say, who would like to volunteer? <laughs> and whoever raises their hand, bismillah, let's go. Right? If you get to another level in your dawah, you can actually pick and choose who volunteers and who doesn't volunteer. Right? And you actually interview them and choose and select the proper people. Once you get a stronger team, you can go further, inshallah ta'ala. Another lesson that you see, Amr ibn al-As, try to make the Muslims seem scary. Demonize them, as we say. Three techniques that he used. Number one was he used fear. So he told the Najashi that, you know what, they're dividing in our families, they're, you know, hoodlums, they make mischief, and they're like, you know, criminals and so on. So he used fear, he was trying to scare him. Number two is he used misconceptions, right? So he say, oh, ask them what, he, what they say about, you know, Jesus and so on, using misconceptions as well. And number three, he used materialism. Those were the gifts that he gave to Najashi and the priests. So this is like, look, here's some economic benefit to you. If you just give them over, you know, here's like a bribe. Take this, take this gift, take that. These are um, the techniques. There's also like a fourth technique. Not, it didn't happen here, but this is a typical technique of, you know, the people of falsehood against the people of truth is using mockery. Using mockery as a technique to influence the masses. If they can mock the Muslims and ridicule them, everybody starts laughing and then nobody takes those Muslims seriously. You also see in this that in the example of a Najash, in the example of Jafar, in the example of Muslims, they were willing to please Allah even if the human beings would be angry. Even if a human being gets angry, so long as a person is seeking the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that's what they need to do. And we see that the result is this, that if a person seeks out the pleasure of Allah, even though they might assume that the people get angry at them because of that, Allah becomes happy with that person and the humans become happy with that person as well. Humans become happy with that person. I'll give you the example. Let's say you're in a university class, two brothers or two sisters, and one of them is going to pray Salah, and everybody's going to see them. And the other one says, no, I'm embarrassed. You know, if everybody sees me, they'll ridicule me, and so on and so forth. So let's say these two brothers, the one says, I don't care. Even if the people are displeased with me, I'm still going to pray. So he goes outside, maybe even during exam time. I've seen brothers do this as well. It's exam time. They ask permission to go pray Maghrib. The teacher that's you know, supervising the, the exam says, no, you can't leave. He says, well, then I'm going to have to pray here. And the teacher's like, that's okay. You can go and pray. So in front of the whole class, basically this person has permission to pray in front of the whole class. Right, 200, 300 people, they're in the middle of exam, they're staring at this guy doing his salah. 
The other guy is too embarrassed to pray. Right? So he decides to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instead. So now, what's the conclusion? What do you think would be the conclusion? The person who prayed, all the guys and girls surround him after, and they're like, what are you doing? That's so cool. We're so proud of you, standing up for your principles. Tell us more about Islam. Basically, they pump him up onto like a pedestal and like carry him out. The guy who didn't pray is still a jerk like he was before. <laughs> he was a jerk before, he's still a jerk. And so if a person seeks out the pleasure of Allah, even if it entails the anger of the people, and believe me, most of the time, the people aren't going to be angry. They'll just be like, what are you doing? That's like all they're going to do. Visual da'wah. Okay, here's the good news. Good news. Najashi became Muslim, right? You guys know that. Here's something that my guess is a lot of you might not know. Amr ibn al-As also became Muslim during this event. So in this argument... Amr ibn al-As, and I, I've been like holding back to say radiallahu anhu just so it doesn't mess up the story. So you know. <laughs> Amr ibn al-As, he went back to Mecca and actually when An-Najashi gave da'wah to Amr ibn al-As and told him about the truth and what the Muslims were saying was the truth and so on and so forth, Islam entered his heart. Now he still fought the Prophet for years after that but eventually he became Muslim and the, the seeds of him becoming Muslim happened during this event. And so the Muslims had stood up and they said the truth and look at how much barakah came to them because they stood up for their principles. There was a woman in Habasha by the name of Umm Habiba anha. She, her husband died in Habasha and from a distance the Prophet married her. So Umm Habiba is one of the wives of the Prophet and it shows you that the Prophet was following their news. All these years they're following it, her husband died and the Prophet from a distance uh, married Umm Habiba and then she traveled and she was with the Prophet in Medina. Allah Ta'ala Alam. Alright, the Pledge of Allegiance. So now in these three years, after like the 10th year, you have the 11th, 12th, and the hijrah happening in like in the 13th year, the Prophet ﷺ was now seeking another place as a foundation to spread this message of Islam. The people of Mecca hadn't accepted, hadn't accepted the message of Islam. Now the Prophet ﷺ was searching for someone else. There was the option of Habasha, but firstly it was like uh, the Prophet ﷺ went to a ta'if to see if they would carry the message of Islam and they rejected it. And subhanAllah, whoever would accept from the Prophet ﷺ, that would be the Medina. That would be the Medina. And of course, it was the tribes of the Aus and Khazraj that accepted the message of the Prophet ﷺ. The Aus and Khazraj, these two tribes that lived in Medina, at that time it was called Yathrib. And the, and the term Yathrib actually is a, is a name that the Prophet ﷺ disliked. So sometimes, you know, some guy comes to me and he's like, I got this really cool web website, it's called Yathrib.com. I'm like, no, brother, you need to get rid of that one. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, there's a hadith, he said, يَقُولُونَ يَثْرِبْ وَهُوَ Medina. He said, they call it Yathrib, but it is Medina. And so it's a name that the Prophet ﷺ disliked, and he changed the name Yathrib to Medina. And there's other names for it, Taiba, Taba, and so on. So these two tribes, the Aus and Khazars, they lived amongst the Jews in Medina, right? They lived amongst the Jews in Medina, and the Jews in their scriptures, they're very knowledgeable of scriptures, it says in the scriptures that a prophet will come at the end of times. These are his characteristics, such and such. 
And, and we studied this actually in the Breach of Covenant class, the, the previous class that we taught, um, Tafsir Surah Al-Baqarah. They used to make dua against the Aws and Khazraj tribe, and they would say, Oh Allah, support us against you know, the Aws and Khazraj, help us to destroy the Aws and Khazraj with the Prophet that is to be sent at the end of time. This is like the du'a, and they knew the Prophet ﷺ, as Allah said, Just like someone would know their own child, they knew the Prophet ﷺ and his characteristics. So, the Aws and Khazraj, when they came to Mecca and they'd come and perform Hajj, they would see the Prophet ﷺ, and they recognized that the person that the Jews were speaking about, this was the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. This was him. He was claiming you know, to have revelation from God and all of the qualities that they heard from the Jews, they now recognize it in the Prophet So this statement here, which they came to the Prophet with, they said, we've left our community for no tribe is so divided by hatred and rancor as they are. Allah may cement our ties through you, so let us go and invite them to this religion of yours. And if Allah unites them in it, no man will be dearer than you. So these are the Aws and Khazraj, these two tribes, they hated each other the most. And amongst the Jewish tribes as well, the Jewish tribes are kind of like running, you know, one Jewish tribe was, you know, was friends with like, you know, the Aws, and the other Jewish tribe was friends with the Khazraj. And they would just like run them, they would like, and, and the Aws and Khazraj were always getting into fights. It didn't take too much to provoke them. All it would be like, remember that time? And they would just get angry and they start fighting. This is before Islam came to them. And so they came. There's um, two pledges that happened with the Prophet. Again, this is in Hajj time. Hajj time, Mecca is, you know, one of the names of Mecca is Ummul Qura. Ummul Qura. The mother of like all valleys. And Medina, actually, there's a hadith in which the Prophet said, Umirtu bi qaryatin ta'akulul qura. I was commanded to migrate. To a, to a valley or to a place that will eat all the other places. Right? And it's Medina. So now you have, um, so they came in Hajj time, when people would come for Hajj, all these people would come from different areas. And they would, you know, during Hajj, the Prophet would give them the message of Islam. Tell them, La ilaha illallah tuflihu, say La ilaha illallah and you'll be successful. And the Prophet said, Who will support me? Until I, pat, and until I fulfill you know, this message of my Lord and, and give it to the people. And so, so many of the people would reject the Prophet when the Aws and Khazraj saw the Prophet and they recognized him based on what the Jews had told them, they accepted the message of Islam. You know what's something interesting about um, Mecca as well? If you look at a map, you know they'll say Mecca is the center of the earth. Now I thought to myself, anywhere you stand on earth is the center of the earth. Right? But there's more to it than that. Why do they call it the Middle East? The Middle East is because if you look at all the different countries, and most of them surround Mecca. Right? So you're talking about, like, say, you have like, Russia, you have Africa, you have Europe. All of these countries surrounding right in the middle is Mecca. From all directions, if you just step back and look at the map, they're all going into Mecca. And if you take another location and say, oh, if the Kaaba was, like, say, in Australia, Right, Australia is like you know in the middle of nowhere, or even in like North America, it's like it's still in the middle. Of, nobody has access to. It, but if you look at Mecca, it's such a strategic position in the world, and that's where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala decided to put His Kaaba, Subhanahu wa Taala.
So they came the first time and, and they pledged allegiance with the Prophet وسلم, and then they, Mus'ab ibn Umayr anhu, they, the Prophet sent him to Medina the, with um, like the Os and Khazraj tribes and he went to Medina to teach the people about Islam. Right, basically to prepare and condition the area. So the Prophet ﷺ, also part of the strategy, he didn't just, you know, like these few people accept Islam and then he just went to Medina and now he has to deal with everybody. He had someone go there and teach the people about Islam. So Mus'ab anhu, he was like that delegate to Medina. When he went to Medina, you know, on his own, um, the people of Medina, they were starting to get very angry and agitated that someone was coming here, spreading this message of Islam. Uh, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, who later became Muslim, but he was a chief in, in Medina. And he heard that Mus'ab was going around spreading these beliefs and stuff like that and causing to divide families. So Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, he's a chief. And like we said, the Arabs, they're going to choose the most courageous of people. He took out his sword, he went to Mus'ab, and said to him, you either desist from what you're speaking about or I'm going to kill you. And now when they say I'm going to kill you, what do they mean? You know like when we say, man, I'll kill you. What does that mean? <laughs> it means I'm just a talker. <laughs> right? But they have swords and they, when they say I'm going to kill you, they mean it. Right? Meaning like just you tick them off in the wrong direction. All these battles that have taken place, they've killed many people before. And they were going to kill Mus'ab radiallahu anhu. Mus'ab radiallahu anhu said a beautiful statement to him. He said, even though this person is coming to kill him, he said, He said to him, he said, in the most sweetest, like subhanAllah, even if you hear it in Arabic, it's how you would welcome a mehman. It's how you'd welcome your guest to your house. Awala tajlis, like would you would you care to have a seat and listen? And I'm trying to find some nice words in English. English isn't like that. Right? Would you care to sit down and listen? If what I'm going to, you know, our affair, if it pleases you, you're welcome to accept it. and if it and if it displeases you, if you dislike it, takra. We will hold back from that which you dislike. So what do you think Sa'ad did at that point? He put his sword back in, his, in the sheath and he sat down. And now he's getting da'wah from Mus'ab ibn Umayr. Right? And he's listening. And the more Mus'ab is explaining about the Prophet and what he's coming with and the message that he came and to worship Allah alone and, and you know, saying the message, Sa'ad's face, Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad, his face started like illuminating. And he was getting more excited and more excited and more excited until his face became like a full moon of brightness, illuminated. And then at the end, his question is like question time. His question is this, you know the question that he brings up? What does one need to do in order to become Muslim? And Mus'ab says to him, he's like, well, take a bath and then you say your shahada. And so Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, he said, Sayyidina, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh anhu. He, um, he took a bath, he gave a shahada, and then he went out to the people. He went out to his tribe and he said, what is my position amongst you? There he said, you're our chief, you're the son of our chief, and so on. He said, verily, all of you, you know, all of you are haram upon you until you believe in Allah alone and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And they say that night, everybody in Medina went to sleep as a Muslim. 
So Mus'ab ibn Umair, in his beautiful da'wah techniques, this is a person basically, like sometimes you'll, you'll be treated aggressively, right? Someone will shout at you in the street and so on and so forth. It's a da'wah opportunity. How many people recognize it as a da'wah opportunity? But it is. Someone is being aggressive with you to turn that around and guide that person to Islam. And so the area had been prepared for the Prophet ﷺ. The next year, the Pledge of Allegiance took place. This is the statement of Al-Abbas In the second year, basically it's like during Hajj and they went during the night because they didn't want the mushrikeen to see them. They went during the night and they gathered with the Prophet and presenting the Prophet was his uncle Al-Abbas And he made this statement to the Aws and Khazraj and he said to them, O people of the Khazraj, you all know that the position that Muhammad holds amongst us. We have protected him from our people as much as we could. He is honored and respected amongst his people. He refuses to join any party except yours. So if you think that you can carry out what you promise while inviting him to your town, and if you can defend him against the enemies, then assume the burden that you've taken. But if you're going to surrender him and betray him after having taken him with you, you had better leave him now because he is respected and well defended in his own place. This is a statement of Al-Abbas This is what was involved in the Pledge of Allegiance. What were they pledging allegiance to? Basically that they would listen and obey the Prophet in all circumstances. So a key point here is the Prophet wasn't just traveling to Medina, he was traveling to become their leader. Okay? It's a key difference. He's not just going to Medina and then later on they say, hey, why don't you be our Imam? And he's like, okay, and so on. No, he's entering from day one as the leader of Medina. From day one. So part of the promise, their, their pledge to the Prophet is to listen and obey in all circumstances. Why does it say, this is another uh, side point, why does it always a sam'i wa ta'a? To listen and obey. Because some people don't listen. Right? You know, they're, they're not attending, they're not listening, they're always closing their ears and so on and so forth. Some people listen but they don't obey. And then there are others who listen and obey. Right? So they've listened to the commandment of the Prophet and they follow those commandments of the Prophet in all circumstances. They would spend in plenty as well as in scarcity. So no matter what the financial situation uh, would be in Medina, they would still give for the sake of the da'wah. Uh, number three, to enjoin the good and forbid the evil. Number four is, in the path of Allah, they would not fear the criticism of any criticizer. That's number four, which is a critical one as well. Because remember we said at the bottom of people's intention is to get love of other human beings, right? So now part of the Pledge of Allegiance is that they will use human love you know, of one another, they will criticize you, they will mock you, they will put you down for following this path. And so in the path of Allah, you will fear no criticism of any criticizer. And they pledged allegiance to that. Number five, to defend the Prophet ﷺ in case he seeks their help and protect him from anything that they protect themselves, their spouses and their children. So basically, if they were going to protect their wives and protect their children, whatever they would protect their wives and children from, they would protect the Prophet ﷺ in the same way. Right, from any army. So basically, if an army came and was attacking Medina, they're never going to say, oh yeah, you can take the Prophet Just like they would never give up their women. Nobody's ever giving up uh, their wives and their mothers and so on to anybody. And they're never going to give up their children to anybody. Similarly, they would never give up the Prophet in the exact same way that they would never give up their wives and their children. 
So they said in response, they said, if we do this, we agree to this, basically we will have to go to war with all the Arab tribes. They'll probably lose all their money, and they'll go to war with all the Arab tribes. And so they said to the Prophet ﷺ, if we do this, what will we get in return? And the Prophet ﷺ said, you will get Jannah. What did the Ansar say in response? They said, sounds good. <laughs> and they pledged allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ. There's actually interesting, they, in their pledge of allegiance, and they, the contract is being written, and, and this is what they're pledging allegiance to, one of the Ansar said to the Prophet ﷺ that, you know, we will defend you against anyone except the Persians. Those crazy Iranians. <laughs> except that we, like we can't fight the Persians. He's like, they're crazy. Nobody can fight the Persians. And the Prophet so they were saying, like, we will defend against everybody, but the Arabs, they never fought with the Persians. Like, the Byzantians, they didn't, those are like the Romans, the Europeans, they're not that big a deal. But the Persians, nobody touches the Persians. They're crazy. So the Prophet any Persians here? <laughs> the Prophet said to them in response um, that this deen, Okay, the, the statement of the Prophet was, Inna deen Allah yansurahu illa man min al-jawanib. The Prophet said that the, the deen of Allah, the religion of Allah, cannot be championed except by someone who protects it from all directions. And so when the Prophet said that, then they agreed, they said, yes, even against the Persians, we will defend you.